The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. Discussing local, national, and international issues. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to the very first of 2024 Weekends with Jason Olborn. I'm delighted that you can join us, and I hope that you got a lot out of the last hour with Julian Gillespie and Dr. Christopher Neal in work that is being conducted as we speak in order to be able to create a COVID Royal Commission on the people's terms. It's a phenomenal result. And when you think back to a couple of years ago, when you may have been out at a rally or protesting or just complaining about what's going on, it was one of our benchmark efforts that it would be that the people would be able to put something together. And we should be enormously proud of the work that we've done in order to encourage others to be able to do this continued work uh, that is not just limited to the professionals like Julian and like Dr. Christopher Neal. But in fact, my next guest is another person you are going to be delighted to meet and hear about the work that he is doing in relation to what's been going on. Chris McNichol is a retired school teacher. He's worked mostly in South Australia in the education department for nearly 30 years. And he was retired when the so-called pandemic hit us. The pressures that teachers face, had he been still working, it would have been a very, very different scenario for him. What does that do? It really changes the way that you consider everything. By 2020, uh, Chris had connected very strongly with the Adelaide Freedom Rally and friends in a local community like many others who are watching now would have been doing in their communities. Now, it's not just teaching that Chris has done. He also worked in public broadcasting for six years. And it's that combination that allowed him to start thinking outside the square and really questioning from a different perspective over what's going on. And Chris's work with a submission, like we heard with Julian and uh, Dr. Chris in the last segment, he's, he also is preparing a submission, but this time for something different. And it's about the responsibility of broadcasters. Can you believe that? After everything that's going on and misinformation, etc., here is a man with a lot of background and a lot of work and a huge commitment, and he's now asking questions of the mainstream and this so-called trusted news initiative. Let's bring him in now. Chris McNichol, welcome to Weekends. Thank you, Jason. Good to be with you. Oh, it's a delight, Chris, to, to have you on the show for the first time. And we first communicated, like many of our other uh, viewers and listeners can do via email, and you're welcome to email me or any of your presenters with different ideas. And it was, Chris, the work that you brought in and continue to do that is just incredibly impressive. But it's the perspective that you've put together in your new submission that you're preparing about the media and the so-called Trusted News Initiative. Tell us what you're doing. Certainly. Um, well, perhaps I could start with a question for you, Jason, and then everyone else that's listening. Um, if that's a, a teacher trick. Good on but, you. Uh, it's, it's one that uh, cap causes us to focus on, on the issues and think through them selves more for ourselves. And the question is this. I want you to imagine that uh, the COVID-19 Royal Compe uh, Commission has been completed and it was all very effective. Uh, and there was substantial recognition of changes that need to occur in the medical fields and all related fields such as that. But 
there were no changes in relation to broadcasting. What would be the impact of the Royal Commission if that occurred? That's my question to you. What That's do you think? Part. It's a it's a wonderful question because for all of the results that came out, you would wonder if the media would therefore interpret these so-called recommendations and change what they do, or would they go back to old habits and perhaps protect themselves, insulate themselves against complaint or something like that? Or a third way I might have considered just off the bat is that they say, well, it was nothing to do with us. We'll just keep going the way we're going and let our share price increase and enjoy the profits that come. It's a disturbing question, Chris. It is, but clearly uh, there appear to be vested interests operating uh, in the media and in broadcasting in particular. Uh, the work that I've recently been doing to put together a submission is focusing on free-to-air broadcasters in Australia because that provides a focus there. That's also tends to be recognised as the most powerful uh, of the traditional uh, broadcasters. Things are radically changing, of course, with new technology coming towards us, but that still tends to be the case. So not many people are aware of um, a group called Trusted News Initiative. Mm. Now, Perhaps you can assist me here, Jason. Can you tell me what you know about Trusted News Initiative? Well, it's it's a very sort of uh, sneaky type of, of idea. We don't quite know what it means, but it seems to imply that public broadcasters or mainstream broadcasters are somehow trusted because they're mainstream or public broadcasters. It seems to be a self-licking ice cream, as my friend Peter Richards likes to say. Yes, I've got a friend who um, described it as a bit bit Orwellian, uh, and Steve Kirsch, of course, made the statement that uh, we should not trust the trusted me me news initiative. Um, and uh, I definitely concur with his beliefs and, and commitments in that regard. Um, the trusted uh, news initiative, I first became aware of it as an entity um, through um, watching uh, the movie, and I assume that you've watched it. I'll perhaps ask you, have you watched this movie, uh, Safe and Effective, The Second Opinion? It's quite old now. It's 18 months old. Have, did you see that movie? You know, I haven't oh, seen the movie, but it's 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 automatically on my list, and I'm going to um, ask you how I get hold of that film. Okay, I'll, I'll certainly can give that to you. It, um, it I've just only today discovered that, I'm suspicious about the circumstances of the fact that it's it's not up there <laughs> to be accessed on its uh, normal normal address, mm. but it's certainly still accessible. And uh, I've got some links. Perhaps we can come back to that, uh, and I can perhaps uh, give it to you after the program when I'm on it. finish being on air. But there, it it definitely is worth watching. In my opinion, for the average person who's sharing with the average, you know, whoever, it communicates a lot of information uh, that is extremely valuable. It's very well done. It's very well edited. It's very well narrated. And uh, for the, for these reasons, it's a still, even after all this time, uh, a very powerful documentary. It's up 
it's it's up there. Like I don't want to give too many plugs to the ABC, but the ABC in terms of standards of content and so on, uh, their Four Corners programs have varied, of course, but some of their best programs have been magnificent in terms of the level of um, the way they've been done and presented. And this is up there with that. So it's a, definitely a quality program. It was on that program. It is a BBC production. That's the limitation of it. But uh, the UK is very, very similar to what has occurred in Australia and New Zealand and, and various parts of the world. Of course, there's differences. And that's one of the limits of that that program, but it's it's certainly a useful program. And I would say for most people, it's more effective and more useful than, um, you know, this Royal Commission in understanding what's going on. And mm. it's, um, and I've just in the process of purchasing five copies of Too Many Dead, which AMPS has also produced, only just released. Uh, and uh, I strongly commend to many people, but, um, Perhaps uh, I'll allow you to ask it. I need to go back to the question of um, what then is um, mm. trusted news initiative. It it appears to have been initiated on the surface by the BBC. And there are two Australian news agencies. Um, that's, well, obviously, the ABC has uh, indicated... Uh, that they are connected with it, and that was put out in, I think, November 2022. And um, in addition to that, the SBS network is also linked to it. Now, more concerning factor is that one would tend to think that many of our broadcast networks such as Channel 10, Channel 9, Channel 7 um, and other smaller ones appear to have been following the same view street mm -hmm. with respect to how they're doing the news. So an important question for the Royal Commission is, are they also connected or is there some other mechanism of control that's operating. Now, under the Broadcasting Act, uh, Broadcasting Services Act of 1992, and there's been amendments, I believe, since then, um, there's very clear guidelines that in relation to the, the issue of control. So this brings up the issue of the ACMA, AMCA, the Australian Media Communications Authority, you know, how much do they know about this as well? And uh, under the Act, the Minister has a lot of powers as well. So one, there's a whole lot of information that one would, it would be good if a Royal Commission could find out the detail of, of what has been going on within our nation in terms of this particular network seem, uh, seeing that it appears to have been not just in two stations, but the the protocols have been operating across the board. If that's the case, what's the mechanism for that? And there are a lot of other questions that ought to be answered and, and brought to light because our Act explicitly uh, spells out 
it's meant to be about diversity, diversity of viewpoints, uh, diversity of understanding for the sake of our democracy. That was a key part of what was uh, initially, well, I can remember that and being taught that when I was in school in year 12. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it seems to be seems to have been potentially subverted. So we've got to find out the truth in that regard. So um, that's one of the things we're hoping that can come to light. Look, it's a a very, very important issue and the idea if we're going to move into these new so-called misinformation laws where the government and the mainstream media are excluded, they need to be scrutinised and furthermore need to have checks and balances in the system. How is it that authority can continue to grant authority more powers that protect authority and allow authority to do whatever it likes and tell us how to live our lives? It's an obvious thing and uh, almost overlooked, Chris, but uh, the ability that you had there and somehow with uh, your experience, you've identified something that's very, very important. Just briefly before we have to go to the break, uh, how did you arrive at working this out that others may have missed in terms of realising that the media has a very, very important role to play here and are not just the PR arm of the of the government of the day? Well, it was um, more of an intuitive thing. Um, I mean, I've been aware, having been involved in broadcasting, it was just um, for six years, uh, I was just very, very aware that um what was being presented to us was um roughshod you know we were being given no indication of any other view Mm. um and and i could quote example after example after example where the 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 mainstream media or broadcasters tv free to air tv broadcasters just have not um given any clue of what's going on. And, I mean, you had James Regusti just before. I mean, that's a classic one. Mm. That has not been reported one iota yes. amongst the mainstream. And and so um, I actually drew up a list of what I thought were the most concerning and dangerous issues, and I had uh, the issues to do with who right up high up, and I thought it might have been my number one issue. But no, I had to put the issue of um, broadcasting and the media and and the control and the manipulation that may be occurring there above that. Because if we were getting uh, proper reports coming out of, um, you know, the, the big channels, um, then the whole situation would totally turn around. Mm. It would... I mean, there's a sense in which if mainstream media kind of silence an issue right across the board, in many respects for, for the large proportion of the population, it doesn't exist. Yes, yes. And that's that's the concern that our forebears saw with the way things have been going, with decreasing amounts of lack of diversity. And uh, ostensibly... We still have that in the act, but it may have, it appears that it may have been undermined with various arrangements and they've got to be looked at. 
And that's the point, isn't it, that as we get into this examination phase of what's going on, that uh, it not only requires a royal commission that looks at what happened during the pandemic, but also at how the media, which is the uh, driver of the information that the government and the bureaucrats want to get out there, and it is absolutely important. We're going to have to go to a break, but uh, Chris, I want to thank you for your time today and the continued work that you're doing, the important work that you're doing to bring accountability to the media. Amazing that it has to come from within and a citizen in Adelaide doing the hard yards for all of us. Chris McNichol, thanks for your time today. On weekends, we're going to take a break and be back. And as we go to India for our next segment with the editor-in-chief of qvive.in, Ashu Patak will be with me after the break here on weekends on TNT. TNT Radio's Hervoy Morich. Approximately 650,000 Ukrainian men aged 18 to 60 have left Ukraine for Europe since the start of the war. It's a tough spot if your country is being invaded. Uh, that's one thing, and you're a, a male and a citizen. Um, but you know, if the war, if it's a globalist war, I, I wouldn't want to participate <laughs> in these banker globalist wars. And most of them just uh, are. Pervoy Morich on today's News Talk Radio TNT. When the world's endangered animals need help most, when their lives are at greatest risk, when they would otherwise be lost. The International Fund for Animal Welfare is there, taking action to rescue the animals we love, to protect them and their threatened natural habitats. But the danger to animals the world over is growing, and the need for your help has never been more urgent. On land, you'll help stop poachers from threatening and killing elephants and big cats for the illegal wildlife trade. In the oceans, you'll help rescue dolphins, whales, and seals from deadly hazards. And you'll help rescue, rehabilitate, and release vulnerable animals when disasters strike. Here at home and around the world, we can't do this work without you. See how you can help animals and people thrive together at joinifall.org. Listen up! Now listen, we gotta talk. It's what we do best. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to our last guest for the first day of weekends for 2024. And coming up in just a moment is Ashu Patak. He is or has 25 years of TV journalism experience in India. He's the editor-in-chief of QVive Digital News Network and a working committee member of the Universal Health Organization in India. The UHO is a forum to ensure impartial, truthful, unbiased and relevant information on health that reaches every citizen of the world so informed choices can be made about their health, your health. Ashu uh, coordinated the Indian leg of Dr. Peter McCullough's tour along with John Leake in February of last year. His website is QVIVE, so that's Q-V-I-V-E dot I-N. Ashu, welcome to Weekends. Thank you. Thank you for having me on video so now. Jason, thank you very much. How is the weather there? It's too cold in New Delhi. I can't believe that I'm hearing that my Indian friends are suffering from the cold. It must be the climate change issue. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, this, the, this, <laughs> this weather is too much cold and uh, maybe the impact of climate change. But uh, I, I'm not in that league, in fact. 
Of course. I, I mean, climate change is all about the warming and the hot and the heat, and you're going to uh, you're going to pass out from it being too hot. And here we are over in New Delhi, and it's too cold. What does that say to the world? I do want to say that I celebrated my birthday last weekend, and I had the most magnificent Indian feast I've ever had in my life. I was actually thinking of you as I was doing it because I wanted to compare notes if we had time about uh, about some of the beautiful cooking that I had, and uh, and that's one of my hobbies. That's why I bring it up. My other hobby, of course, is cricket, and if we have time today, I might ask you about how the effects of the World Cup were taken after the defeat uh, of India by Australia a few months back, which was also disappointing. But that's not really what today's interview is all about. I want to get a little bit serious for a moment. And I want to ask you in an election year, what is the mood like in India at the moment? Is there a feeling of change? Or is there a feeling that Prime Minister Narendra Modi is doing a good job and will be returned to office for another term? But let me let me uh, tell you first that as you mentioned about the cricket, that's very interesting thing. Then we'll come to your political uh, question. <laughs> so we lost, the, we lost the we lost the final match at the, in a row that we own uh, uh, nine uh, nine matches in a row. But uh, ultimately, which uh, uh, India had to win, but uh, lost the match. But it is a cricketing spirit that. Uh, we cheer the win of Australia too. So therefore, uh, we congratulated the Australian team. But uh, Australian team had a very great experience on the on uh, Motera ground, Narendra Modi ground, and Ahmedabad. Uh, but the wicket was not good. But uh, uh, this is not the excuse. Australian team played very, very fantastic, and they deserved the final. And we didn't play uh, up to our expectation. That's why we lost the match. Therefore, uh, uh, Australian team and Australia deserve a very uh, uh, deserve the clap and the uh, World Cup too. So, uh, whole Indian is congratulating all Australian team. Now, come to your uh, political question. Uh, can you please repeat what is your question for politics in India? Certainly. So in an election year, the elections kind of start April, May. It's a very long election process. What is the feeling on the ground in India today? Is there a feeling that Prime Minister Narendra Modi will be returned or is there an air of political change happening in India? No, as far as the feeling is concerned, the, uh, the nation's mood is absolutely in favour of Narendra Modi. And uh, the whole 140 uh, uh, million people, and uh, I think that uh, one uh, 1.40 crore in terms of crore. So uh, th they are almost uh, uh, bigger than whole Europe, America, and England, and even include Australian population. So that way, that the uh, the biggest population is going to uh, to get the witness uh, to to be the witness of the general election. And as you rightly said, that uh, the uh, uh, mood of the nation is absolutely in favor of Narendra Modi because he earlier uh, five state uh, just uh, uh, had the election uh, result and uh, uh, BJP got out of uh, uh, five, got the three state in, in his favor. So BJP own all three states by far, far margin. So mood already gone in favor of Bharti Janta Party, which is the ruling uh, party. And the prime minister is leading the uh, movement of uh, BJP. 
and undoubtedly narendra modi has become a very very popular leader in not only in india rather i have seen one uh uh, uh one survey uh, in all across world that the modi got 76% popularity ratio so therefore i think that the yes everything is favor of narendra modi and uh, modi certainly is in favor of narendra modi the fact of the matter is jashan that the opposition the 26 parties alliance india alliance that is called india dot 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 so called that india alliance they made the india alliance so in comparison to uh, bjp which is in power india alliance is uh, uh, lacking far far behind i think that they, they don't have the charismatic leader who can challenge narendra modi at this point in time and by uh, 22nd of uh, january uh, there is a great event going to be uh, in ayodhya and uh, there is a ram temple movement it's been a 500 years movement and uh, narendra modi is going to inaugurate the temple in uh, ayodhya this is going to be a very very a uh, turning point of indian history too therefore the mood the whole mood of india is certainly in favor of uh, narendra modi and the big community the hindu community the sanatan community is certainly in favor of narendra modi for this particular uh, work and article 370 abrogated uh, 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 from uh, jammu and kashmir that is again a great achievement and the triple talaq issue also gone in favor of narendra modi so the muslim community the women of muslim communities also supporting narendra modi because uh, narendra modi done a marvelous thing which uh, no no party is in opposition done earlier so th- th- these are the issues uh, on which narendra modi is eyeing that he is coming back to the power It's um, very impressive uh, what we're seeing over there in India, and what's what I'm finding interesting, um, Ashu, is that this is a very, very big year for uh, for national elections. Not only do we have the election in India that looks like, as you're saying, that Modi's a hot favourite to be returned, we're going to see a presidential election in March in Russia, and it seems almost at impossible odds that anyone could defeat Vladimir yeah. Putin at any stage. So, of the BRICS nations, there's no political change. But if we go to the West, and we look at last year new zealand was a uh, big political change there virtual wipeout of the labor party uh in that country rishi sunak's in a lot of trouble in the uk and that election has to happen uh before january of 2025 with calls that it may happen in the second half of this year so when one western government fallen last year another one likely to fall this year joe biden looks uh at no chance of being returned in the united states unless there's some clandestine methods of being able to do that trump's already miles in front there so we look like we're going to see political change in the united states and justin trudeau is facing election around about october or before this year against pierre poiliev who is 15 points ahead there and uh, and then in australia uh, we have to go to the polls by may of next year with anthony albanese uh, almost neck and neck with the unpopular peter dutton so it could well be that 
all Five Eyes nations, Australia, New Zealand, US, UK and Canada, could all have changes of governments within an 18-month period. And whilst the BRICS nations are looking as solid as a rock, so the idea perhaps that the unipolar world led by the superpower of the United States versus the multipolar world are at complete odds. This is a very, very different perspective to what we may have thought of as early as a decade ago, Ashu. Jason, you rightly uh, explicit uh, in a great manner that uh, uh, no way this world is going to be unipolar. So absolutely, you, you rightly hit the uh, right button that uh, this world is going to be multipolar. There is no way of unipolar world in coming uh, uh, this year and after this year, after 2020, after 2024. So half of the population and more than half of the population is going to uh, witness the election, general election, as you rightly said, US, UK, New Zealand, Australia and India. So and in Russia, too. So uh, I think that the India is the uh, is going to be a very uh, pivotal uh, position uh, for for rest of the world, too. So India is going to play a very pivotal role in, in making the multipolar polar world because the whole world is eyeing, a whole world is looking up to India. Yes, you, you wanted to say something? Well, what I wanted to bring into, into that conversation was uh, something I think that's very important is the cost of living. And even last year when we were reporting on Compass about the price of tomatoes, who would have thought that that's a significant story? But it is a massive story that even inflation infected uh, India in such a way. But I wanted to come back to the idea of just simple food production. India is now officially the most populous nation on earth with, what, some 1.4 billion people in the country. And it seems that India can continue to go from strength to strength. I'm not sure if you're aware of this fact, but since the beginning of COVID, the population of India has increased by more than the entire population of Australia and New Zealand combined, around about 30 million people. That's astonishing. So here we are. And as you as you rightly say, we can't have a unipolar world anymore. I mean, India is too powerful uh, and, and too productive and uh, in this ever-changing world. And you only needed to watch the World Cup cricket to realise the level of technology that's in India, that the, the stadiums were beyond magnificent. Uh, and it didn't matter what part of the country you're in to watch. So it's not like we're seeing an India that we might have remembered from 20, 30, 50 years ago, depending on our age. This is a completely new experience. What I wanted to ask you, though, though, on an economic level, is um, are the people doing better or worse under Modi? And is food production, for example, safe in India going forward for such a large population? So nowadays, India, as you rightly said, the India is most not only populous, rather, if you want to live in Delhi, it is costlier than any of uh, any any area of the world. If you if you if you want to buy a flat of uh, one thousand square feet or fifteen hundred square feet, uh, you will have to pay uh, two crore, three crores in a, in, a, in a better location. So that's very costly. So mm -hmm. you, after COVID, after COVID, the cost of living has gone up. But the, but the fact of the matter is the agrarian economy and the agrarian population is completely, uh, completely based and dependent upon government policy. Therefore, more than uh, 80, 80 billion people, 
more than 80 billion, 8 billion people uh, are, are getting government support, two times meal from government, and the government is protecting more than 8 billion people. So, so I think that the problem is the cost of living going up, and there, there is a one population segment uh, whose earning is uh, higher than U.S. earning. But the one side of the population, they don't have that much of earning, but they get the uh, government's policy, government schemes. Uh, they, get, they, they get the benefit from all the government schemes. So therefore, I think that the gov Indian government, Modi, is somehow uh, completely managing the economy too. So if you, if you go to the different metro cities of India, you will be amazed at how growth is taking place. So highways and railways and airports are building uh, every now and then. So uh, I think that the uh, inflation rate, sometimes I think that uh, they, are, they are in favor of the economy. Good inflation, but not the bad inflation. But yes, there are, there are, there are populations who are certainly uh, getting the jolt of the highest inflation. But there are population who are almost getting richer and uh, richer. And the globalist, as you mentioned, that the death uh, and the population risen uh, uh, after COVID. Why? I think the globalist agenda could not take place in India. The whole population, if you ask the government uh, machinery, they will say that the whole population is vaccinated. But I can tell you, not more than 70% population is vaccinated and still 30% population is not vaccinated. This is the reality. And the whole vaccine lobby uh, got a maximum jolt. They are not getting profit in India. Therefore, they have shut their uh, 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 shops and uh, they, they, they keep doing that, that this variant is coming, this variant is coming, but nobody is going to listen to them. So media sometimes try to influence them that the second variant of COVID is coming. That is very harmful. So you have to be vaccinated. But uh, most of the population don't believe their, uh, their, 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 their narrative anymore now. So this, is the, this can be the one ra uh, 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 reason that uh, almost because uh, vaccination adverse injury is very much evident all across the world. So the death rate uh, gone uh, gone up after vaccination. If you get the uh, detail of Israel, if you get the detail even in Australia or in Sweden or in other part where uh, unvaccinated people have no any effect, but the vaccinated population are getting more and more adverse effects. So th these can be the uh, parameters. Yes, again, the living standard is also going going up. So therefore, I think that the population is is almost in the safe hand like Narendra Modi. Yes, Jason. That's a very interesting uh, perspective there because I wanted to go into another area of the globalist agenda and that being climate change. Now, Narendra Modi is very good at playing both sides of the fence. In other words, he will turn up at the G20, he'll be the president, and then he'll turn up at the BRICS and seemingly they're kind of opposed to each other. I find that fascinating that uh, that he's such a brilliant statesman, that he goes in there and he's loved on both sides of the fence. But that's a good and a bad thing because you don't know which way the wind is going to blow, so to speak. But it seems, though, that he knows which side his bread is buttered on 
But at the same time, he's playing the climate change narrative and also the WHO and their areas of concern. So where I wanted to go was to kind of compare facts here and talk about energy production in India, because it's one thing to say that you're going to go down a climate change pathway, but if you're still building, building coal-fired power stations, what you're demonstrating is that you are putting the needs of your people before the so-called needs of the planet. And I find that that is where putting is a really important step because you're not just doing what's happening here in Australia where the government says, we're getting rid of this, we're getting rid of that, and that's just the way it is. It just doesn't make any sense. So are there more coal-fired power stations being built? Is India able to meet its energy demands any other way, for example? Yes, I think that the India is managing all the superpower. If you look at that, uh, they uh, India managing Russia and US both way in a very a very balanced manner and vis-a-vis uh, -vis in even in china too so the, the, um, uh, india is not fighting uh, with neighbors like china and india is having good relationship with uh, russia and and the same time relations good relationship with uh, us too so india is trying to balance with all the all the power centers of the world and therefore and uh, trying to be more independent as far as energy is concerned. But again, the whole world is dependent on petroleum product and the uh, diesel product. So India is again dependent upon Russia or the Saudi Arabia and other uh, parts of the world and as far as the energy is concerned. As far as you said about the climate change, yes, India is balancing the, balancing the uh, game. Sometimes you will find that India is in support of climate change narrative, but sometimes you will find that no, India is not going to buy any narrative by the globalist power. I'm just giving you a very uh, uh, a great uh, inference that uh, Prime Minister Modi uh, certainly uh, uh, convinced that uh, who are the globalist player who want to control the whole world. And therefore, this safely distancing the prime minister modi and the government indian government uh, diplomacy is safely distancing from this narrative and now they are entering into other other narrative like uh, uh, modi just met alan mosque in 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 us and uh, uh, i think so that uh, modi is no more interested meeting in a meeting to uh, bill gates so therefore, the, you will find a very balancing act uh, uh, Indian diplomacy is doing. Uh, sometimes they they are standing with the uh, Bill Gates, and sometimes you will see that they are standing with the. Uh, I think you. No, we still got yeah, you there. We still got you there. We've, I've still got uh, Ashu there. I don't know what's going on, but what we might do is we'll take a quick break. It's that time, and we'll be back with more here on weekends on TNT. Hi, I'm Susan Lucci. I never thought about heart disease until I had my own heart event. At first, like so many other women out there, I ignored my symptoms. A slight pressure on my chest, shortness of breath. I thought, I don't have time to be sick. I had a 90% blockage in my main artery and a 75% blockage in the adjacent artery. I received two stents in my arteries, stents developed through research funded by the American Heart Association. Those stents saved my life. I'm so grateful to the American Heart Association. Their research helped save my life. 
I can enjoy life with my children, my grandchildren, and my friends. Please, listen to your heart. The only reason I'm here today is because I did. Learn more about the American Heart Association's life-saving work at helpheart.org. While serving in Afghanistan, I was hit by sniper fire. The fighting was so intense, the medevac chopper was barely able to land. In the hospital, I was given a 5% chance to live. It's a good thing math wasn't my best subject. Today, I visit classrooms and share my story. I talk to kids about dealing with life's struggles. I tell them, with a little help and a lot of work, that you can overcome any challenge. DAV helps veterans like Adam get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. I know that some struggles are big and some are small, but they're all struggles, and you have to learn to get through them. With support from DAV, more veterans like me can live their best life. And as a new father, I have one more reason to keep on keeping on. My victory is being there for the next generation. Adam Alexander, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Discussing local, national, and international issues. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. We're here with Ashu Patak. Ashu has just had a couple of uh, glitches there, but I think we've got him back. Ashu, I'm just, yeah, there you are. Wonderful. So, Moving on from uh, where we go next in terms of India, around here in the West, there's the usual push for digital ID and central bank digital currency and smart cities. Are any of these concepts on the radar in India? Yes, here India, Indian government is, uh, 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 I think that the doing the round the clock about the digitization and digital currency uh, Indian Federal Bank, uh, Reserve Bank of India, a uh, few months back, uh, said that the uh, Reserve Bank will have uh, their own digital currency. But uh, people are using a digitized network as far as the transaction is concerned. More than 90, 98% and 99% transactions are happening, uh, uh, digital transactions nowadays. But uh, they are reluctant to buy the currency, digital currency like cryptocurrency and all and uh, uh, other other format of uh, currency. But certainly, yes, the Indian economy is almost moved to the digital way. That's the, uh, that is the concern for the common people. So common people don't understand uh, uh, what are these, uh, 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 these, these narrative, is narratives going to harm uh, the normal population. They don't understand. And there is, uh, literacy about the digital uh, transaction and digital currency. Uh, there are cyber attacks going on. There are uh, cyber crimes going on. So these are the, again, the adverse effect of uh, digitization. But um, as you said that the, uh, as at West is depending on what, upon digital, uh, digitization and digital currency, India is also moving towards digital currency. Some good things also coming out uh, uh, from this uh, digitization, but I think that the bad things are more happening uh, uh, due to uh, digitization. Therefore, I think that the common people must get the proper education, which government is not doing anymore, and government is just forcing them to be on uh, digitization part. 
so uh, some some way uh, somewhere i think that the in coming future uh, the population the the normal population will will lose the uh, independence so uh, some people are still uh, uh, doing around the clock that uh, they should have the real currency on the paper currency they don't believe in plastic currency and digital currency so 10 15 years back there was a uh, there was a narrative about the plastic currency that atm and credit cards and atm cards but now it is digital currency you don't need to have a atm and credit cards you are just transferring uh, by one click uh, lakhs of lakhs of money and billions millions of money so uh, it is a cause of concern too as uh, we as a journalist uh, trying to educate people that you must have the paper currency and the the coins uh, uh, visible coins so that uh, you will not lose your independence in your future because it is all controlled by the government machinery so once they will uh, they will offer you the social credit which is already happening in china so people are mm. re really reluctant that uh, uh, one day if you won't have uh, your paper money at your hand the everything will be controlled by some server and uh, they can uh, they can tell you that uh, your behavior is not up to mark your behavior is against the government your behavior is against the society so they can block your uh, banking operations immediately yes. then you will you will not have anything to move out from even uh, from your home so that's the matter of the liberty but i don't think that the people are well aware of it we are trying to educate the people that uh, if if you will be dependent upon only digitization then you will lose your liberty and sovereignty what i wanted to bring up was the concept of privacy and anonymity and these are two things that concern many people about the idea of your freedom being taken away your privacy being taken away in a digital transaction and your anonymity the idea that you can have a cash transaction and no one need know what you bought when you bought it etc that's a very big deal now privacy and anonymity here in australia is probably a little bit different because i don't know in 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 a country that has 1.4 billion people versus a country that has 26 million people if privacy has the same meaning for example in india does that make sense absolutely you are saying jason the privacy as far as the privacy matter is concerned that is worst vulnerable in india you can find that no population is educated about their aadhar card the social the sort of social social number which you say in west in us the here it uh, people uh, used to say the aadhar card aadhar card that's your uh, personal identity number so the personal identity identity number is been given to any agency without any uh, proper scrutiny so government has already linked your aadhar card number personal identity number with all your bank accounts with all your passports and everything so wherever you will go you will need the personal identity number and it is in public domain you can find everywhere your personal identity number which is the worst and the vulnerable situation in india i think that the gov even government is not protecting uh, the security of the people so this is a cause of concern uh, uh, uh jashan and the uh, globalist power they somehow 
somehow uh, entered into the government system and they almost captured these kind of a things but now government is uh, very much uh, uh, very much aware about of, of the fact and government is trying to to uh, to decimate all these happenings which happened so they are trying to protect the uh, individual sovereignty too but the privacy is uh, is absolutely invulnerable safe in india yes uh, a very very different perspective to how you might expect it would be in, in in a country with not many people imagine the difference in new zealand with only a handful of people six million Israel and if you know uh, Palestine small populations but of course that's different to landmass but Australia versus India and compared to landmass versus population two very very different scenarios altogether let's move along to a, another subject and that is electric vehicles here in Australia the comparison is that there's always a little bit of an increase each year on year in terms of electric vehicle production but it's not as impressive as the greenies would like it to be over in the United States it was reported that late last year there were millions of vehicles that were just unsold and in fact that the uh, there were some almost 4,000 motor vehicle dealers who'd written to Joe Biden collectively and said stop the mandates we can't sell them what is the um for example are, are electric vehicles being taken up by perhaps certain classes of people in India or is or is production quite slow there the same as as you might expect in the rest of the world no, I think that on this issue, I would like to ask the counter question to you that can you please tell us that because the whole Indian population, uh, they want to know that the, 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 uh, uh, that the lobby of petroleum, they don't uh, push the agenda of uh, uh, electric vehicle all across the world. And the same thing happening in India too. So if you, if you want to buy an uh, electric vehicle or four wheeler in india you have to uh, you have to spend uh, uh, i think the 50% more or sometimes 100% more than the petrol uh, petrol vehicle and the diesel vehicle so therefore electric vehicle is very expensive government is saying every now and then that uh, after 6 months and after 1 year electric vehicle will be cheaper than the petroleum or uh, a diesel vehicle but i don't think so it is not coming down prices price is not coming down people are willing to buy the electric vehicle but they don't have the option they are costly and their stations now charging stations uh, are uh, are building uh, by the government or the private agency too even in the societies where uh, uh, thousands of people are residing they are trying to build the charging station battery charging station but it will take time and i think that uh, this pace of the uh, uh, electric vehicle is moving towards the good i think that after one year uh, you will find more and more electric vehicle in the uh, almost i think that in metro cities you will see uh, uh, good growth in metro cities and in, after that you will see the uh, tier 2 and tier 3 cities you will also see a good growth of electric vehicle but still, uh, uh, India is uh, not on the pace path. It's not uh, uh, having a great pace. Therefore, I think that the India is willing to know that what is the globalist, globalist agenda of petroleum lobby. Are they willing to push only petroleum uh, vehicle or are they in favor of electric vehicle? 
Look, it's a very good question, isn't it? Because what we see here in, in the West and we see the same in the US is that every year it seems that the uh, that the emissions levels that uh, oil oil driven motor vehicles use is lower and lower. So we don't see the powerful V8 engines anymore. We see very, very small capacity petrol engines normally coupled with a turbocharger to boost um, output of power, et cetera. And so you compare these smaller engines against these smaller electric vehicle motors. And so it becomes a little bit more of a genuine uh, trade-off between the small petrol vehicle, the small electric vehicle. But like uh, our first guest today on the show, Mike Netta said over in the US, that it used to be that the market would sort these things out. And I think that's the most important thing here is that we're being dictated to at so many levels around the world that we're told and it's subsidised that you must get an electric vehicle. And unfortunately here in Australia is we have the tyranny of distance. It's a very big country and not a lot of people and people need to drive their motor vehicles long distances. So there's a concept that's the same in the US called range anxiety, where people buy an electric vehicle and they realise that they can't get very far to a charging station where they need to wait for 20 to 40 minutes to get some level of charge to move to the next destination. There was a story here in um, uh, a few months back uh, that uh, somebody had purchased a particular um, uh, SUV type of electric vehicle that had a range of about 350 kilometres. They got into their car and they drove at 110 kilometres on a highway to drive from Melbourne to Albury, approximately 350 kilometres. They expected to do it on one charge. However, they worked out that when they were travelling at the highway speed of 110, they only got 110 kilometres in the range of the vehicle before the battery was dead flat. It took them four days to get to their destination that they should have achieved in three and a half mm. hours. And therefore you have another problem. And that's the point with all of this is that if they would just let the market work it out and not force this technology down people's throats, we may be in a very different position where people might say, you know what, we'll get one electric vehicle as our next vehicle. That'll be the one that we use for little trips around town, but we will keep our petrol powered or diesel powered SUV family vehicle. And what they've done in the process is that they've moved along in a certain way to appease what the general population expects in this time, whether we believe in it or not, but it's just a different way of doing it. And it's very interesting, Ashu, in this conversation that we're able to have today, is to compare notes across different but, parts of the world. But 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 in India, you will find that the EV producer are saying that uh, they will give you a vehicle which will last up to 450 kilometers in one charge. I don't think so. But uh, uh, when I talked to some EV uh, owners, they said that yes, I'm uh, I'm happy with the uh, vehicles and uh, they. Uh, they give the uh, one uh, uh, 450 kilometers at a stretch and one, in one charge. But uh, still, people are a little reluctant to buy the EV vehicles right now. Still, you will find the Volkswagen has uh, not introduced any EV vehicles. And the Skoda has not introduced any EV vehicles. But the, uh, but the Kia and other cars, the, the, uh, uh, the Honda and uh, the Maruti, they introduced AV vehicles, but uh, we are just waiting for good uh, German cars also. The production like uh, Volkswagen and uh, uh, Skoda, they, when they will produce the EV vehicles. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Just uh, how I love the way we can compare this across the world. You're not going to believe this when I tell you, but the closest new car dealer to my current house where I live is Mahindra, which is an Indian uh, vehicle. Mahindra. 
Oh, it, it, quite incredible, isn't it? You'd, you'd never expect that I would say that to you, that that's what we we have here across the road. Of course, we have other manufacturers that have dealerships nearby to where I live, Volkswagen and, and Nissan, but the Mahindra is the closest one. Quite incredible. That's how far we've come around the world. As this yes, is the Mahindra is produced. That's Mahindra right. introduced in vehicles, yes, yeah. And there it is. It's quite incredible. Now, unfortunately, um, Ashu, we have run out of time. So um, okay. I, uh, it's been wonderful to catch up with you again. And I look forward to speaking with you, you on on the road to the elections because it's a very, very big deal. But on that yes. note, I am going to have to say goodbye and thank everyone for watching and listening today on Weekends with Jason Oliver. And thank you, Ashu. There'll be a whole lot more coming up. Thank you. A whole lot more coming up after the break. Thank you very much.